trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis. Thanks for joining us here again on Access to Excellence. We're excited to be joined today by Martin J. Sherwin, a university professor in Mason's College of Humanities and Social Sciences, who specializes in U.S. history, Cold War politics, diplomacy and culture, history and film, and nuclear history. Dr. Sherman is an accomplished author as well, having won the 2000 Pulitzer Prize with the book he co-authored, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. His latest book, Gambling with Armageddon, Nuclear Roulette from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis, meticulously examines the 13 incredibly tense days of the clash with the then Soviet Union in October 1962. We just recently passed the 50th anniversary of that crisis that brought us a lot closer to nuclear war than ever before or since. We thought it was a great idea to take a look back at President John F. Kennedy's confrontation with Nikita Khrushchev over Soviet missiles that were installed just 90 miles from the United States and what made the Soviet premier blink. Marty, welcome to the show. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get right into it, shall we? Do you think that most Americans today, Marty, even realize just how perilously close we came to nuclear war in October of 1962? Well, John, until I researched this book, I really didn't realize how close we had come. It was literally a matter of a minute or less. So if Americans don't realize it, read the book and find out about it. (laughs) (laughs) How truly frightened should, should everybody have been had they known just how, how crazy things have gotten. Well, they should have been just as frightened as President Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev were, which was very frightened. And that's one of the reasons that the crisis ended so precipitously on October 28, 1962. Uh, Khrushchev was terrified that things were spinning out of control and a nuclear war could result. And it was even closer than Khrushchev thought it was. Well, let's, let's walk things back a little bit. Just how did this whole crisis begin in the first place? Well, there are lots of different ways to define the crisis. Initially, it was defined as the 13 days from October 16th to October 28th when the crisis ended. October 16th was the day that at 9 a.m., President Kennedy was informed that a U-2, a couple of days earlier, had taken photos that demonstrated that the Soviets had snuck these medium-range and intermediate-range missiles into Cuba. However, what gambling with Armageddon does is to go back to Hiroshima and to look at the crisis as what I call the long Cuban Missile Crisis. The role that increasingly played from the Truman administration through the Kennedy administration. And it is not unreasonable to argue that the Cuban Missile Crisis was initiated by the United States along with the Soviet Union in the following sense. We introduced nuclear weapons as weapons of war with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Eisenhower administration escalated the role of nuclear weapons enormously with massive retaliation, brinksmanship. Eisenhower had an arsenal of about 1,200 nuclear weapons in 1953 when he was inaugurated. When he left seven and a half years later, eight years later, 
there was an arsenal of standby for this over 22,000 nuclear weapons in the American arsenal. And that created the framework for the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. Eisenhower also had the idea in 1958 of putting nuclear weapons in Europe, intermediate and medium range nuclear weapons sent to Turkey and Italy. Turkey, 130 miles from the Soviet Union. Those missiles were called Jupiter missiles, intermediate range ballistic missiles. And boy, they really bothered Khrushchev. And they bothered him so much that he said, after the Bay of Pigs, when he was convinced that, as Castro was, that the United States was going to invade Cuba, I'll do the same thing Eisenhower did. I will put medium and intermediate range missiles in Cuba, 90 miles from the United States. And then this is a quote, he said, and now we will have, and then we will have a balance of fear, F-E-A-R, fear. We look back at the Cuban Missile Crisis now, what's the number one thing about it that stands out the most to you? Well, how close we came. As a historian, however, looking at it, what is its, uh, the role that it played in the Cold War? In the 17 years between Hiroshima and the Cuban Missile Crisis, nuclear weapons were viewed rather differently than they were after the Cuban Missile Crisis. The crisis frightened Khrushchev and Kennedy so much, made them realize that these were not stabilizing weapons, that they were destabilizing weapons and they had to be controlled. And after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the process of developing treaties began in 1963, right after the uh, crisis, I think within about a year, the um, limited test ban treaty was signed. And then following that, a whole series of treaties, which unfortunately our present president has thought were unimportant and has been backing out of treaties. And these treaties are the rules of the game, the stabilizing factors. I mean, without those treaties, it's like playing football without any rules. Here's the ball, guys. Get it over to the other side, (laughs) you know, and just do it any way you want. So we need these treaties And the Cuban Missile Crisis was the precipitating event that began to focus national security establishments on treaties. You talked about the rules of the game during the height of the Cold War. Mutual assured destruction was obviously something that everybody tossed around, MAD, the acronym. How relevant is that even today? Is it even possible today when more threats are coming from more individual actors rather than state actors? Well, mutual insured destruction was part of this extension of massive retaliation. And I think that for sure, it caused more problems than it solved. You know, I would quote George Kennan on this, where he said, the nuclear weapon cannot in any way lead to a hopeful foreign policy. At best, it is a deterrent against itself. And I think that's what the Cuban Missile Crisis showed. First of all, if we didn't have nuclear weapons, there wouldn't have been a Cuban Missile Crisis. So while there are arguments on one side of the debate, 
that these have been stabilizing forces. I think the arguments on the other side of the debate that they have been destabilizing forces and brought us very close to nuclear war are stronger arguments. How did the lessons of the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in April of 61 later help JFK in the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, the Bay of Pigs is absolutely critical to understanding both the origins and the evolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis from start to end. Just to review for our audience, during the last years of the Eisenhower administration, after Castro took over Cuba in January 1959, in 1960, Eisenhower began the process of trying to essentially eliminate Castro. And one of his ideas was to have a group of CIA-trained anti-Castro Cubans invade Cuba. They weren't able to do this. They weren't able to get it organized in time during the Eisenhower administration. So Eisenhower, in effect, imposed what became the Bay of Pigs, the invasion of Cuba by anti-Castro forces on Kennedy. And uh, Kennedy followed through because Kennedy would have been happy to get rid of Castro too, just as happy as Eisenhower was. But Kennedy made it very clear to the CIA that this operation was going to have to succeed on its own. The United States was not going to send military forces to support a failed invasion. And that was the same view that Eisenhower had. When the Bay of Pigs began on April 17, 1961, within two days, the invaders had been defeated. Kennedy refused to send American troops in to support them, as he had told the CIA. But the CIA had believed him. They just, you know, assumed the president would do it anyway. Anyway, he didn't. And what the Bay of Pigs did were two things. One, it made Kennedy very skeptical of CIA and military advice, number one. But number two, it created a situation for Kennedy where he could not accept politically another failure. So in very important ways, Kennedy's response to the Cuban Missile Crisis, that is, the missiles have to go, was the result of the Bay of Pigs, because if he left the missiles there, his view was that his presidency was finished. So what you have really is a political response to this Soviet initiative that put the world at risk for domestic political reasons. What I always found so interesting was the Kennedy administration's decision to call the cutting off of Cuba a quarantine as opposed to a blockade, which is considered an act of war. Why were even the smallest nuances like this so critically important? Well, you know, I think if they called it a blockade, things would have evolved in a similar way. They would have called it a uh, defensive blockade. Uh, you know, they would have made something up to try and legalize it internationally. But calling it a quarantine was very clever. But I don't think it was a critical factor. 
doctor. Uh, it just made it a little easier to uh, and quicker. Uh, well, to telegraph to Khrushchev and to the United Nations, the international community, that this was defensive rather than offensive. Now, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as you mentioned, were adamantly opposed to any move that left Castro in power, calling the Communist Cuba a threat to the entire Western Hemisphere. In fact, Air Force Chief of Staff General Curtis LeMay even likened the blockade to Neville Chamberlain's infamous appeasement of Hitler in Munich in 1938. How dangerous was a situation like this for the U.S. when the President of the United States and all the top military leaders were in complete disagreement about the nation's best course of action? Well, it was, it was a very interesting moment, let, let's, let's say. I, I would have two separate responses, and they seem like they don't fit together, but they do under our system. One, I think it's very important that the president receive the honest advice from his advisors rather than yes men. So I don't think there was any problem with the Joint Chiefs telling the president what they honestly believed. The right. problem was what they honestly believed. These men in 1962, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, were all products of World War II, and they were virulently anti-communist. And the combination of the World War II experience, over, use of overwhelming force, bomb till the enemy gives up, etc., and their virulent anti-communism created a frame of reference that was totally at odds with the situation as it existed in the nuclear age. I mean, we're talking about the danger of nuclear war. Now, General LeMay, the Air Force Chief of Staff, had been the head of the Strategic Air Command. For over a decade, he had promoted the idea of the Strategic Air Command wiping out the Soviet Union in a, in a week. He was just ready to go if the Soviets pushed us over the line. Fortunately, President Kennedy had a very different view, and he was no pushover. So there was an extremely interesting debate between the Joint Chiefs and the President, and the President held his grounds. There's a wonderful, if I may say so myself, chapter in Gambling with Armageddon that describes the meeting between the President and the Joint Chiefs on Friday, October 19th. So that's uh, like three days into the conflict. And Kennedy explains to the Joint Chiefs exactly why he has his view and why their view is not a view that he is going to accept. And we have the exact words that they all used because it was held in the cabinet room, no, in the Oval Office, and the Oval Office was bugged. Uh, there were secret tapings of these meetings. It's, it's a fascinating exchange. You had mentioned earlier about the U.S. placement of the Jupiter missiles in Turkey. But what role do these missiles actually play in the diffusing of this crisis? That's one of the great ironies. The missiles were arguably what initiated the crisis, what gave Khrushchev both the idea and the excuse to put the missiles into Cuba. But at the end of the crisis, Khrushchev 
on Saturday, the 27th of October, the day before the crisis ended, broadcast over Radio Moscow a proposal that he would pull the missiles out of Cuba if Kennedy both promised not to invade Cuba, which Kennedy was willing to do, and removed the Jupiter missiles from Turkey. All of Kennedy's advisors were, all of them, the civilian ones and the military, with the exception of Adlai Stevenson, were against the idea of trading the missiles in Turkey for the missiles in Cuba. But Kennedy was determined to avoid a nuclear war. And if it required removing these, what were obsolete missiles from Turkey, he was willing to do it. He explains to his advisors, again, we have these secret tape recordings. He says to them, you know, we are not gonna have a very good war if everybody realizes that is all we had to do was trade obsolete missiles in Turkey for these missiles in Cuba, which makes a lot of sense. But his advisors were adamant, we are not going to respond to any requests like this with a gun to our head. So fortunately, the president held the line and he secretly made a deal with Khrushchev, promising Khrushchev the missiles would be gone in a few months after the crisis. But it was kept secret and it was kept secret for decades. Now, in his book, 13 Days, it was printed following the death of his brother in 1963. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy kind of portrays himself as one of the few voices of reason amidst the many calls for war. But later tapes that were released show otherwise, don't they? Uh, Yes, they certainly do. You know, (laughs) there was this interesting exchange that uh, when Bobby showed the manuscript to a Uh, a friend of his who read it, he said, gee, Bobby, I thought Jack was the president during the crisis. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and Bobby apparently responded, allegedly responded, well, I'm running for office, not Jack. (laughs) So this book, 13 Days, which is the Robert Kennedy view of the American response to the Cuban Missile Crisis was really a campaign document <laughs> to show that he was that he was the leading dove. That's the argument in the in the book. The secret tapes show a very different Bobby Kennedy. And to sum it up, I would say when Bobby Kennedy was on his own in these meetings, he was a hawk. When Bobby Kennedy was doing what Jack told him to do and he was totally devoted to his brother, whatever Jack said to do, he did. Then he was a dove. So (laughs) he was both. Sounds like a politician. Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) In your book, you quoted President Kennedy as saying the world is impossible to manage as long as we have nuclear weapons. What exactly did he mean by that? Well, uh, you know, that you have a situation where the world is always on the edge of disaster potential for a nuclear holocaust is there. And one cannot make a lot of sensible policies. You can't take initiatives that you would otherwise take. A world balanced on the edge of a fence, one side being nuclear war, is a very difficult world to inhabit and make decisions in. Kennedy thought that nuclear weapons were a disaster. He he didn't talk about this, certainly, 
publicly because he was ultimately a politician. And he promoted the expansion of America's nuclear arsenal. But privately, he wished these damn things didn't exist. That's kind of ironic since he also won the White House campaigning on that, the missile gap. It is the nature of democratic <laughs> politics to complicate everything. <laughs> what did we collectively learn from that superpowered confrontation? And how can we see some of those lessons today? Today, I don't think we see any lessons. Uh, you know, we have an administration that is absolutely blind to history, that makes up the past, makes up the present. It's really a disaster in many, many respects. And it's very, very, very dangerous. Sure. But what should be learned from the past is how difficult it is to maneuver in a world where there are so many nations armed with nuclear weapons and the potential for so many more nations to go nuclear. There are two great challenges of our time. Well, there are many more than two, but <laughs> the two that I would put on the table are the environment and the nuclear, nuclear arsenals around the world. One day of nuclear war can destroy the entire environment. So it seems to me that the nuclear issue and the environmental issue are bound together. And the great challenge of our time is to figure out how to get rid of nuclear weapons and provide security for the nations that have adopted nuclear weapons in order to support their security. What are the alternatives? What is an alternative way of stabilizing the world without threatening the world with complete destruction if there's either a crazy leader or leaders make a mistake? Now, so much has been made about the public and backdoor diplomacy that helped avert nuclear war during that crisis. But sheer good luck, I mean, just plain good luck, played a prominent role as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? One of the themes of gambling with Armageddon is the role of luck. And I begin the book with the story of four Soviet submarines that had reached the quarantine line during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when those submarines were discovered, American anti-submarine warfare forces went after them to try to bring them to the surface. One of the strategies for doing that was to drop very low-powered depth charges in their vicinity. Well, one of the skippers of one of the destroyers that was chasing a particular submarine, its designation was B-59, decided to have his sailors throw hand grenades over the side, which had <laughs> a lot more explosive power. And these hand grenades, of course, created terror when they exploded near the submarine within the sub. These were conventional submarines, Foxtrot-class submarines, which had been designed to operate in the North Sea area around the Soviet Union. They were in the Caribbean. They had inadequate air conditioning. They had no air conditioning. The temperatures were between 120 degrees Fahrenheit and 140 degrees Fahrenheit in the engine room. Sailors were passing out the 
captain of the submarine finally decided that the U.S. Navy was trying to sink him. And he said famously, we are not going to be the shame of the Soviet Navy. We're going to die, but we're going to take them with us. Load, get this, the nuclear torpedo. Each of those subs had a nuclear torpedo with a warhead the size of the Hiroshima bomb. And that torpedo was almost fired at the U.S. aircraft carrier that was in the vicinity. That's 4,000 sailors aboard that carrier, plus the other ships around the carrier that would have been taken out by that torpedo. And it was only at the very last minute that another senior officer aboard that submarine, who was on that submarine by chance, realized that they were not trying to destroy the submarine, just trying to bring it to the surface. And he managed to have the order countermanded. We're talking about 60 seconds, 80 seconds, something like that. That's pretty close. Talk about luck. If Vasily Akhapov, which was the officer's name, was not randomly assigned to that submarine, it is likely that we would not be having this conversation. Wow, that's incredible. That is really incredible. Everybody alive should know about this story. Now, what steps have been taken by global leaders in the years since the Cuban Missile Crisis to ensure that we, we never get to the brink of nuclear oblivion as we were then? Well, first of all, it's important to say that there's no way to ensure that we don't go over the brink to nuclear oblivion. Sure, sure. Okay? But the steps that were taken after the Cuban Missile Crisis, as I mentioned earlier, were creating treaties, creating relationships between nations with nuclear weapons that gave each nation confidence that the other nation was not going to have an advantage that was so great that they would initiate a war. Now, none of these treaties are perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect treaty. Is there any such thing as an absolutely perfect marriage? Yeah, in in theory, of course. (laughs) But you have arguments. And, And that's what treaties are all about creating as much stability as you can. And this administration, the Trump administration's efforts and successful efforts to back out of treaties has been the most dangerous thing that has happened since the Cuban Missile Crisis. One thing that gets me, Marty, is like luck and chance play such a big role in history. I mean, for example, Nagasaki wasn't even the primary target that morning. That's correct. These people going about their business, no right. idea the how close they were oblivion, only this random cloud cover. It just no, 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 boggles no. the brain thinking about it. Right at the beginning of my book, in the introduction, I talk about the role of luck in history as being absolutely critical. And historians really don't know how to deal with it because it defies rationality. But when you develop an international system that is so dependent on luck being on your side, good luck versus bad luck, you are not creating a very good system. And that's what we have done. And we've been very lucky so far. Now, some people would argue, well, we've made our own luck. Okay, I'll give you that. We have. But that doesn't mean that we've made 
a way to assure that we have good luck. Well, the possibility of nuclear Armageddon is a lot for us to all to contemplate, but that's going to wrap things up for us here at Access to Excellence. I want to thank Martin J. Sherman for his time and insights. We want to wish him well and everything going forward. I'm John Hollis, and thank you very much for joining us. Stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.